you know, I thought I had experienced the greatest trade ever when I, the, 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 basically the crowning trade on my hedge fund career coming out of the great financial crisis. And that one was the simplest money that I thought anybody could ever make. And it wasn't risk-free, but it was such a good return. And this one is, honestly, this thing is an order of magnitude better. And what does an order of magnitude better mean? It means at least 10 times better than the best trade I've ever seen. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. In this episode, Josh and myself, Dan, are excited to be joined by the one and only Greg Foss. Greg has burst on the Bitcoin scene over the last couple of years as a renowned thought leader. He spent 32 plus years as a credit trader and analyst, and he now serves as an executive director and Bitcoin strategist for Validus Power Corp in Canada. He appeared on the main stage at the recent Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami. He's written in Bitcoin Magazine, and he's been a guest on a plethora of top-tier podcasts, including Bitcoin Fundamentals with Preston Pish and What Bitcoin Did with Peter McCormick. This was an incredibly fun and downright important conversation. Simply put, Foss is on fire during this hour and 15-minute discussion. We talk topics including how to escape the fiat Ponzi spiral, Bitcoin's asymmetry as an investment, pensions, bonds, Bitcoin and energy, suggestions for building your asset portfolio, whether or not Satoshi was even a human, sniffing glue, and much, much more. If you're on Twitter, you can follow Greg Foss at FossGregFoss, and you can follow us at Blue underscore Collar BTC. We hope you enjoy this discussion as much as we did. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Greg Foss, welcome to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Well, what a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We're delighted to have this conversation. We've been looking forward to it. Josh and myself, Dan, we were talking uh, before we started recording, and we, we agreed that one of the most beautiful things about Bitcoin is this sort of wonderful collision between folks of just vastly different experience and backgrounds. So we're sitting here. I mean, you're a renowned Canadian bond trader. You've spent 30 plus years navigating credit markets, talking to a couple career firefighters here. <laughs> I'm just, honestly, Greg, I'm just worried about you keeping up. That's yeah, my main I, concern. I, I would agree. I would agree. This is going to be, I'm on my toes, fellas. So let's uh, give me, give me a break or two. If I, uh, if I'm down for the count, I'm going to get back up. I promise. Yeah. We'll try to define terms. <laughs> keep things simple for you, Greg. All right. All right. So you've, we've heard you on a lot of different shows. It's been said before, very Dalio-esque. Bitcoin is an idea meritocracy. And obviously in the last I don't know how long it's been, but really, I've been, we've been exposed to you for about a year and a half. You popped on the scene because you provide such an interesting lens. We're going to start basic here. You've been asked it a bunch of times. Just give our audience, and some of them may not have been exposed to you, a little background on yourself and then how you got interested in Bitcoin. Sure. Uh, so the key thing is, uh, uh, I think when I explain my history is that uh, 
I, I, if, if there's one thing I believe in is mathematics. Okay. I believe math is the base layer of language. And by that, I mean, uh, it doesn't matter if you speak Spanish or French or English or Chinese, uh, everyone understands mathematics. They may not, not understand the mother tongue of, uh, or the dialect, uh, that people speak, but they certainly understand math because math is the same in any language. It's the base or any spoken language. It's the base layer of the language. Uh, I'm an engineer by training. I went to a school in Canada uh, in undergrad called McGill University, which is, you know what, it's quite a good school. Um, and uh, I was there. Um, I was actually playing sports more than anything. And I, I was in engineering, not because I wanted to be in engineering to, to, gra to, uh, to pursue a professional engineering uh, job. I, uh, I was there because I was able to, to do it. I was intrigued by the mathematics of it. I was a, I was a solid student, but I was no rocket scientist like uh, Michael Saylor is. But, um, and, and as a side, I always describe Saylor as, uh, so first of all, rocket scientists are literally walking mainframe computers, okay? Most of them do not speak another language. They only speak, like maybe, you know, they gob gobbledygook because they're just, their brain is like a, you know, an, a, a silicon chip, right? But the beautiful thing about Michael Saylor is that he's a mainframe computer, but he can also speak and he's eloquent. And so anyway, I was going to school with all these uh, kids that, uh, well, I was a kid at the time, but uh, I never really wanted to be an engineer. And after my fourth year, I said, well, what am I really going to do? And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a, I, I can be a decent engineer, but I don't want to do that. And I decided I was going to apply to a business school. Uh, and I picked one in the United States that I was able to afford to apply to. That's all the money I had. I had like 250 equivalent U.S. dollars. I could apply to one school in the U.S., and I happened to pick Cornell University, which is a great school in upstate New York. And I was lucky because uh, they were building an international business program. And I'm, I'm convinced that I would not have been accepted as an American in that program, not because my marks weren't good enough, but because my work experience was basically zero. So I got accepted. I'm, 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 I'm a spiritual guy. I believe everything happens for a reason. And I got accepted into this program and I was one of the younger people in that program. And I just tell you, I, I had visited the U S frequently. I'd at that point, I had never worked down there, but you know, I thought, I, I thought the U S and Canada were very similar until you live down there. You, you do not realize how different the two countries are. So that was so valuable as to experience a different culture. Uh, certainly I was living with some incredibly smart people, uh, but also incredibly connected people. Uh, Canada does not have quite the same uh, social uh, uh, bifurcation um, as the United States does. So, uh, you, you know, just a tremendous, tremendous learning opportunity on that front. And then when I, you know, I studied finance and finance is so easy compared to engineering from a mathematical perspective. And I, I, I gravitated to that and I said, you know what, I'm going to be a career finance finance professional. And I did have a, a chance to, to pursue Wall Street career, but I said, no, 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 I'm going to come back to Canada. And I came back and I worked for Canada's largest financial institution called the Royal Bank of Canada. And lo and behold, I was working directly for a special projects team directly for the CFO of the bank. And one of our first projects was pricing our Latin American debt portfolio. Now, Royal Bank of Canada was no different than all other global money center banks. It had made 
a lot of loans, large volume of loans to mostly South American, lesser developed countries, but it included the Philippines and Vietnam. And nonetheless, there was a big problem with the Latin American countries, both Mexico and Brazil had defaulted. And Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady realized the severity of the problem and came up with something called the Brady Plan. And that's not important. What is important is to remember this to your listeners. In 1988, the Royal Bank of Canada was insolvent. That meant it had no book value of equity or risk absorbing capital if the loans to Mexico and Brazil were marked down to market. And very simply, you'd have to mark them down about 75% of your exposure. We at Royal Bank had about 2 billion of each of that, uh, 1 billion to each country. Well, if you have to mark that down by 75 percent, 2 billion down 75% is a billion dollars, $1.5 billion of equity. If you did that for your entire portfolio, because there was a 40, I think there was 40 different LDC countries. Um, the book value of equity of Royal Bank of Canada was vaporized. Yeah. And that figure is in the 1980s. That 1988. Yeah. 1988. Is that still going on today? Are, are a lot of these banks undercapitalized? Well, there is in various in various ways. So you need to you need to understand every cycle has different causes of leverage unwinds and uh, bad debt on the on on the books of banks. But because banks are so highly levered, which means they do not have a huge amount of risk absorbing equity capital relative to their loan base. It happens frequently. So uh, I'll take a step back. And I said, I went, I, I went to our CFO and I, his name, first name, Emil. I go, Emil, we have a big problem. And he goes, yes, we do. Do not tell anybody. And I'm like, <laughs> do not tell anybody. Like, fuck, I, I just graduated from an Ivy League school in the US. And by the way, this was no different than Chase Manhattan or Manufacturers right. Hanover or any other uh, US-based bank. They all had the same problems because Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady realized it. The point is this, like this is, I said, I just spent six years in, you know, combined undergrad and, and uh, business school to, to graduate and realize this is how our financial system works. And so fast forward to, uh, well, not fast forward, go back. That's when I started looking for a solution to this Fiat Ponzi, because why? Why do banks have the confidence of the population to, uh, to uh, leave their savings deposits in a bank? And it's very simple is because the system is too big to fail. There's an implied put that the government will step in and rescue the banks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and so how do they rescue them? By printing money, right guys? It's that yeah. simple. And that since 1988 is when I started looking for a solution to the Fiat Ponzi. And, you know, and then, you know, I did find Bitcoin in 2016, but that's before we jump all the way, it was either Dan or Josh, I can't remember who asked the question, does this, you know, yes, it does happen regularly. Okay. So when did it happen? Well, it first happened in 1988. I experienced it. Then I experienced it in 1998 with long-term capital management. Then I experienced the really big one, which was 2008. Notice there's almost like consistent 10 yeah, year time. 10 frame. Then, then COVID. Okay. And, and at every single point I am, hundred percent. Well, I'm 99.9% .9 convinced that every single major financial institution, if they had marked their book to market was insolvent. Why do you think that in, in, in 2019, 
the Fed and 20, the Fed stepped into the market to buy high yield bonds, unprecedented. Well, it was to protect the financial system essentially against some impending high grade default, uh, not defaults, but downgrades that would have put so much pressure on the balance sheets of, uh, or, or, or the, the markets that the banks again would have been teetering on insolvency uh, because of this. Now the Fed, again, they, they every single crisis, they come with new ammo and every single crisis, they have to come with bigger guns because the crisis has magnified. Every time, all that happens is the leverage in the financial system is transferred to the balance sheets of the governments. And that debt, D-E-B-T, spiral, accelerates and the debt balloon inflates. I did think of uh, a question that I wanted to ask you. And you, you spoke about Michael Saylor and rocket scientists being mainframe computers. What do you think is, manu- is malfunctioning in the uh, mainframe of Elon Musk? <laughs> so here's a neat thing, right? Uh, let's never forget the ability of a mainframe computer to be conflicted. But what is uh, short-circuiting in his brain? Let's take Tesla, which is pretty cool um, in terms of you want to uh, produce electronic vehicles. Uh, but let's call call out the fact that do you think every single Tesla is charged with renewable energy? Absolutely. Do you think no, no, there's no. no, you know, come on. And he knows this, but he also knows he can he can fake it till he makes it, right? Because maybe there will be a day that every single Tesla is charged with solar power. But until that happens, he needs to throw the FUD at someone else, right? He needs to he needs to fling someone else under the bus because if you sat down and analyzed his business model, it's bogus. Like electronic vehicles or electric vehicles, it's a great aspiration. But are you telling me that wind power and solar energy are absolutely pure renewable and there's no uh, environmental damage producing, you know, those uh, uh, turbines and, uh, you know, and, 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 and solar panels? Come on, guys. I mean, it's, it's, it's just so much misinformation and lack of education. So he's good at, uh, you know, he's good at uh, getting people <laughs> sidetracked. Um, is he brilliant? Yeah. Is he uh, eclectic? Yeah. Is he stoned sometimes? Yeah. Yep. Okay. He could be stoned when he's fucking doing this. Yes, shit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, so, so you never know, right? You never know. And, and the other thing about Elon, I mean, he's definitely learning out loud. I mean, he, this dude's involved in 17 different things and, right. and that's great, you know, as you mentioned, but his idea of what Bitcoin's trying to accomplish, just when you see him texting about Dogecoin, for instance, and the scaling thing, anyone yeah. that's been in the Bitcoin space for more than a couple of years, which the three yeah. of us have, it's like this conversation's already been had. So yeah. it is, it's fascinating though, to watch him process this in such a public forum. He's got a podium though. He's got a podium and that's the problem. Um, the other thing I will say, and look, I, so he's half Canadian. So I have to be very careful about, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I like Canadians that are successful and there's no question that Elon's on successful, but I will also point out another fact. And I can say this because my next door neighbor right here in Canada is from South Africa. And, um, you know, South Africans are different, much like Canadians are different from Americans. South Africans are different from the rest of the world. They have different cultures, different upbringings. And am I saying that's an excuse? No, I'm just pointing out a fact that they may use liberalisms differently from the rest of the world. How about that? 
Greg, this while we're on this energy topic, this is Dan here. Um, I want to dig in on this because I've heard you. I've, we've read a lot of you know what you've written and heard you speak a lot. And I know you work for a what is it, Validus Power Corp. Correct. And I, I pulled up a quote here while you were talking. This is from your piece on Bitcoin and bonds. You said, I believe there's a real chance that Bitcoin becomes the reserve asset of the world. The tipping point or fulcrum point for that event is when Bitcoin is adopted as a global unit of account for the trade of energy products. It's obvious that you're passionate about ideas surrounding Bitcoin and energy. You want to talk a little bit about that and what you're up to? Yeah, 100%. So, well, sure. Let's talk about the the rationale for that statement, first of all. Uh, let's think if you're Russia, right? So, okay, first of all, let's define it as this. As an engineer, um, you know, I get the Bitcoin is digital gold narrative, but what resonates with me more than anything is that Bitcoin is actually digital energy, okay? Uh, again, uh, borrowing sailorisms here. Uh, first law of thermodynamics, conservation of energy. I get it. Uh, it resonates with me. Again, I was trained like that. Um, so if Bitcoin is digital energy and you are Russia and you have the choice of of selling your very valuable natural resources for fiat US dollars or Bitcoin, which is digital energy, over time, what are you going to take? Like, it's just quite a simple answer. You'll take digital energy. You're selling natural gas or natural energy for digital energy. Conservation of energy. Okay, right there. So I think there will be a time within my lifetime that Bitcoin is used to price natural resource energy, just not, it's, it's just a, 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 a you know, uh, I'm going to say natural, but it's just a, a logical outcome for an engineer anyway. And once that happens, you know, the pressure will be on Saudi Arabia and the petrodollar agreement and that thing in itself is wrong, but uh, you know, it, it, it will be like everything else. All it takes is a few cracks and then the, these cartels break apart and, uh, and whatnot. But, Accepting natural resource, uh, Bitcoin for natural resource energy makes sense, okay? And when that happens, um, there, I believe that Bitcoin will become the reserve asset. And I, I, I focus on reserve asset rather than reserve currency because reserve asset is a store of value, okay? And it doesn't need to have the same transferability and transactability as a visa uh number of transactions per second. As everyone knows, the base layer of Bitcoin only supports about seven transactions per second. And then there's the lightning network that that brilliant young man, Jack Mahlers, is working on somewhere in your neighborhood. He grew up, I think. Yeah, you know, real Chicago, close to somewhere. us, actually. Yeah, yeah so it's just, just, just so cool. Uh, the, the kid is, you know, he just gives me hope about the future of mankind and all that. But, but he, you know, you have layer one, layer two, layer three solutions on Bitcoin. So, but let's just focus on what we have in the here and now, which is the layer one. It doesn't need to be anything else but a reserve asset because you can have two parallel systems that operate. One that is a savings account, which is Bitcoin, and one which is it, which is your checking account, which is a fiat currency or the like. Okay. And I say that because what is a currency really good at? A fiat currency is good at eliminating the need for barter. When I say that, you know, you don't have to trade uh, two pounds of flour for one pound of whatever butter, right? You, you, you have a, you have a, uh, that's a bad trade, but you know, the point <laughs> is you have a, you have a bad, uh, you have a, you have a price on each of them and you just, 
you, you, you transact in currency, you don't have to do barter. And, and, uh, but those things are not good for storing value. Everybody knows that fiat currencies debase and ultimately fail, but in the short term, they eliminate the need for barter. So think of you having two different, uh, uh accounts and the same thing for an energy producer, right? Shouldn't the energy producer want to build up his savings account with Bitcoin rather than putting in his savings account a currency that's guaranteed to be debased. So that's the logic on that front. I, I love, this is an idea of yours that I resonate with tremendously. It's this parallel system idea. And Greg, Josh and I completely agree. Like we don't want to see immediate and dramatic fiat implosion. Certainly it could happen. The system is sticks and bubble gum and that could certainly occur, but it's our heart's desire that mankind not be just decimated short term. And I, I like the, Maybe we'll call it optimism or hopefulness with which you talk about this parallel system idea where instead of the entire house getting torn down at once, maybe room by room, the thing could be remodeled. So I agree. Thank you. And 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 that's the truth, because look, it, and, and this is what we always have to remember, too, though, uh, you guys being the G1 nation, OK, biggest economy, most powerful country in the world and Canada's you know, sort of slipping in the back door as a G7 nation. But the only reason we are is because we have you as our major trading partner and uh, the largest unprotected border in the free in, in the world. Um, and, and so Canada's G7, but both of us are very privileged. Uh, we need to think about people who live in the other 180 countries of the world that aren't as privileged as us. And those things fail all the time. All right. So you're right. Like G7 countries don't fail all the time. One of them will. And the first one will be Canada. It's going to suck, but that's when it would, that that's the facts. Canada will be the first G7 country to fail on a fiat basis, but you don't, you, you need to have, uh, protection systems in, in, in place. And, and you don't want it to fail all at once. You know, there there will be a collapse of, and, and there always is. Argentina has failed three times in my lifetime already, okay? Um, you know, it's just, it's a serial debaser and a serial defaulter. Um, and it's a G20 country. So just think of it in different terms based on the different places that people live. The U.S. will be the last country to fiat currency to fail. But as Voltaire said, all fiats eventually fail. And I don't want it to happen, but it's almost 100% certain it will happen in my kid's lifetime. Maybe not 100% certain it'll happen in my lifetime, but almost 100% certain it will happen in my kid's lifetime. So you need to prepare for that. Yeah, that was going to be um, the next question I had for you. And I know it's hard to put time frames on these types of things, but can you... Before you answer that, can you explain mm -hmm. uh, to our audience what you meant earlier when you said the risk transfer of risk is is transferring from banks to the sovereigns and then how that snowballs into that final fiat implosion that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, great question. Great questions. It's basically as simple as that. Like the, the, the leverage in the financial system, they say, okay, it's come down and it has, but where did it get transferred to? It doesn't evaporate. <laughs> yeah. It gets transferred to the banks, or excuse me, to the countries that backstop them, right? With these things like TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, you know, all these things that the Fed program, the Fed put in place to rescue the banking system. Well, it doesn't evaporate, guys. <laughs> you know, the Fed issues debt so they can buy securities off of the banks and and relieve the stresses in the banks, but that debt doesn't go away. It's still there, right? 
Right. And, and, and there's the problem. It just gets transferred. It's a transfer mechanism. I, I want to take also a step back. Uh, it, there's an expression in trading. Okay. I'm going to give you a target, but not a time or a time, but not a target. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of prices and in terms of things happening. And, and so, so that's okay. Like, look, I'm highly confident in my, in my thesis. I'm just not going to tell you what's going to happen in the next five years because I don't have that same confidence. I just have, I know what happens. It's mathematical certainty. And I have a belief that I don't want it to unravel overnight, but certainly there is a chance it unravels overnight and then it will be ugly and painful and all this stuff that you, they, that some people pretend they want. I mean, there, there's also that expression, right? Be careful what you wish for because it may come true. Like, you know, you got to be careful, right? This is not going to be good if it unravels quickly. I think another, another sort of theme to explore here for a lot of our peers, people people inherently recognize, Greg, that there's something artificial going on, right? I mean, what what happened last year during COVID, a lot of people are sitting around going, how is this money just appearing in my account without consequence? And so I think in a lot of people's minds, there's sort of this idea that either A, it's all good, there's nothing to see here, or B, <laughs> the whole system is just going to fall apart completely. The angle I think you could help us enumerate here for some folks is regardless of whether there's another great recession or depression or whatever, fiat is guaranteed. And this is where I, I love it when you explore this. Fiat is mathematically guaranteed to debase just based on the fraction of how leveraged and how much debt is currently in the system. That's correct. And you can't argue with math. So uh, uh, it's as simple as a numerator, which is four times as large as the denominator. The numerator is your total global debt. And your denominator is your global GDP or basically uh, a proxy for what's your tax base. And if your numerator is four times the size of your denominator and your numerator has a contractual coupon on it, because that's what a bond is or a debt instrument is, that contractual coupon multiplied by the size of the numerator four. Uh, means that your denominator has to really grow at some sort of, and it's in a, a, actually an impossible number for it to grow mm, at yeah. over time. That's why it's a DEBT spiral and it's going to accelerate. And the result is you need to print money to solve that debt spiral. That is math, guys. Again, right. it's not that difficult. It's actually grade 11 type math, except they'd never teach it to you in grade 11. So would it be fair to say, in your opinion, um, just to simplify it for our audience a bit, that the reason that the money printing has to continue is that that's the way that we keep interest rates low? No, and no, no, no. It's not keeping interest rates low. It has to solve the term. Basically, again, if your debt balloon in the numerator is growing faster than the economy is growing, you have to make up that gap. It's a closed system. So it's not to keep interest rates low. It's actually to print money to solve the debt spiral. Okay, so interest rates going higher will accelerate the debt spiral. Right. It might be the death spiral at some point if interest rates get out of control, but interest rates are never going higher. Okay, guys, let's be clear about that. They are never going higher. The price of inflation may go higher, but they're going to they're going to doctor up what the CPI is and all this other crap so that that interest rates will stay at its current level because if it goes higher meaningfully 
It was Stan Druckenmiller that said, if interest rates in the US 10 year were currently three and a half percent, which is close to where they should be if it wasn't for all this quantitative e easing, mm -hmm. we'd already be, when I say we, it's the United States would already lose reserve currency status. Now the question is who, who replaces it? And I know the answer. It ain't another fiat, okay? But we haven't educated we haven't we haven't educated the the world yet enough, okay? There's only like two percent Bitcoin penetration, and those are the smart people, okay? The people that own Bitcoin now are the smart people. It's even harder to educate the idiots. <laughs> That's true. I, I guess I want to just just for clarification for myself and yes, for sir. our audience, um, mm -hmm. and I know this is probably going to be very simple for you to explain. But the reason that I had that idea is that so the perception of this that i have and i'm sure again it's simple is that in order to keep interest rates low they have to buy bonds so they have to print money to buy these bonds to recycle them back to the treasury in order to hold that interest rate artificially low correct there's a component of that a hundred percent that's a component of it but in every interest rate okay in a free market every single interest rate number, okay, when you think of the interest rate yield on the 10-year, there are two components to that interest rate yield. One is an inflation expectations component. And I argue the bigger one and more important one, even though it's currently much less, almost sloughed aside is actually your credit component, right? If you're lending to somebody, call it uh, XYZ, Inc., and it's a risky loan, you charge a higher interest rate to compensate you for the chance of default on that loan, correct? Yeah. Correct. Well, yep. the United States always has been assumed to have as close to a zero default probability. Unfortunately, the world is catching on to mathematics and they're increasing that default probability. It's not huge for the US, but it's getting bigger for Canada. It's actually very concerning for Canada. And in some countries, it's not even like, okay, well, what time is it? Okay, Argentina's due to default again, because you know they do all the time. So their interest rates are just right off the charts. And that interest rate, again, isn't necessarily their in inflation component. It's a large part their credit component. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I've heard you talk to us a little bit about I heard you, I forget who it was, maybe it was with Preston or somebody else talking about the CDS market and how that's yes. basically the free market's so assessment of it, risk. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. Okay. So, so let's, let's go through my history. So I've traded credit for, for 30 years. Um, one of the things I did do when I was at Royal Bank, this is sort of funny and sort of really sad. Um, when we saw where the, the Brady Bond uh, solution was coming in, uh, in a nutshell, they changed a five-year obligation uh, to a 30-year obligation and uh, through accounting gimmickry didn't require any of the banks to write down their loans because the 30-year obligation was backed by zero coupon treasury securities. It's US a nifty treasury. trick. It was beautiful. The guy was brilliant. Okay. And this was 1988. And again, maybe he understood math better than everybody. But when these bonds were down at 25 cents on the dollar, I actually went to my CFO and I said, Emil, I think these things are fucking cheap. I think we should buy some more. And you know what? You know when a dog is confused when you, <laughs> you, 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 you know, and they look at you with that sideways look, like they turn their head sideways, right? And they, they look at you like, uh, uh, well, anyway, I got one of those looks. And, and, and then you realize banks are absolutely the stupidest lenders in the world. They'll always lend money at a hundred cents on the dollar, but very rarely will they back, will they buy back some of that, uh, that loan that they've made. And they already have a huge exposure to at 25 cents on the dollar. 
right? That's where a trader actually gets, you know, there's, there's more value to a trader than to a, a chief financial officer. But long story short, uh, they never, the bank never bought back any of the Latin American debt the uh, the the Mexican bonds and those bonds went from twenty five cents on the dollar due to interest rates and oil prices and a number of other factors. Those bonds traded through a hundred cents on the dollar, meaning they went to like a hundred and twenty cents on the dollar. So you're saying that would have been a brilliant trade, but you just you were handcuffed. You couldn't make it, dude. I'm telling you, if you if you have a, if you had a we had a billion dollars ish that was worth two hundred and fifty million because it was twenty five percent. And if we had bought another 250 million of it and brought our price, our average price of 100 plus 25 divided by two, whatever that is, it brought our average price down to 62 and uh, 61 and a half cents or whatever. I'm, 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 yeah, I guess 62 and a half cents on the dollar on, on $2 billion worth of debt. When it traded at 130 bucks or 125 bucks, don't you think it would have been so wonderful to pound the market with some of this stuff you bought at six uh, at an average cost of 62 and a half? Mm. Friggin' right. It sounds like everyone I know buy high, sell low. Well, no, well, the, okay, that's you're a good, they're good bankers. So you tell anybody that does that they should have a career in banking. Okay, if they buy high, <laughs> sell low, then we got some guys at the firehouse like that, Craig. They that's their investment strategy. Well, that's sort of sad, but what you actually need to do is you need to, uh, uh, you know, put a different, when, when prices are low, actual risk is low, but perceived risk is high. And when prices are high, meaning the world's sort of euphoric, actual risk is high, but perceived risk is low. Like that's just, look, it's a combination of psychology and, and, and action, right? Yeah. So I've done this for my whole career where I, you know, I trade credit and it's a bit of an esoteric uh, universe because most of the people, uh, you know, everybody who's an investor, they graduate automatically to equities, right? Because equities are all over the TV and you have these talking heads on CNBC about how great this equity is and how great that equity is. And these knuckleheads have no idea even what the debt structure or the capital structure of the company is, and nor do they have the, any idea what price the, the debt of that company is trading at. But your listeners need to understand that unless the debt is worth 100 cents on the dollar, the equities were zero because the debt is a prior claim on yeah. the assets of a company. And this is the finance 101. It's law. It's contract law. Anyway. Fast forward, I always look to the credit markets for truth. I look to them as being way smarter than the equity markets. And they're also a prior claim. So therefore, you should look if there's smoke in the credit markets, there's usually a fire in the equity markets. Okay. Uh, and it's not a good fire. Okay. It's these people who trade equities are really they're not qualified to manage risk, a lot of them. And that's because a lot of them are not professional asset managers. They're, they're you know, Reddit, they read Reddit. And, and I don't want hate mail, so don't give out my Twitter handle here on this, on this thing, okay? But they're fucking idiots, okay? Uh, we've got a, I got a, one guy specifically that's a huge Redditor that just springs the mind when you said that. Oh, yeah. It's his source of truth. Okay, well, look. Uh, okay, I hope he's a, if he's a firefighter, he's, he's a good guy. Anyway, so let's just uh, let's just give him let's give him uh, the benefit of the doubt here. But but the point is, to. I always look to the credit. Good, I always look to the credit market for truth, and the something called the credit default swap market (CDS) is basically insurance. It's like buying an insurance policy on a, a counterparty going bankrupt, and it's beautiful 
in that it's a free market. It's, uh, you, you, it's de you definitely need to be a big boy in that you need what's called an ISDA, which is an uh, International Swaps Dealers Association Agreement. And, and you do it in big size. It's not like for your penny stock traders or anything like that, but it's the market that reflects the most truth, in my opinion. And it trades on all sorts of different entities. Uh, in 2006, you could have bought default protection on Lehman Brothers for nine basis points, which to break it down in its simplest terms, it meant it cost you $9,000 per annum to insure $10 million worth of debt. Okay. Two years later in the great financial crisis, that contract was worth 6 million bucks. Holy shit. Wow. Holy shit is right. And who was right? It was the people that were buying insurance on Lehman Brothers. All right. And who was wrong? It was the knuckleheads that were selling insurance on Lehman Brothers because Lehman Brothers was too big to fail. Well, that's one experiment that the U.S. would probably take back if they could. They would not have let Lehman Brothers fail. OK, but they decided that and, and there's these conspiracy theorists that said Dick Fold is going down. And why is Dick Fold going down? Well, because he was the guy in 1988 that that uh, did not agree with the long term capital management, the LTCM restructuring. So there's long memories on Wall Street. And Lehman Brothers basically was let to go, let go, and Bear Stearns was rescued by JP Morgan. Why? Well, there's some conspiracy theorists, theorists that would say it was because Dick Fold. Uh, you said not to swear on this uh, program, or if it did. No, we uh, said the opposite, Greg. Let it fly with reckless abandon. Oh, you can send it. Okay. Well, I know you did. I know you did. So here's the funny thing Dick Fold, who is the CEO of Lehman Brothers, was rumored to have. Goldman penis envy. Okay. He wanted to be <laughs> Goldman Sachs. He wanted to have a big swinging dick like Goldman Sachs. And he snubbed Goldman Sachs in long-term capital management. And the world came home to roost and his bank and his net worth went to, you know, very, very low. And, and hey, that Wall Street is controlled by certain individuals that uh, have long memories. So all I'm saying is, look, that stuff is all nefarious shit. The credit default mark swap market was real. And the same thing is available in countries today. You can go and look at the various levels that insurance trades on sovereign nations. Has that needle moved up at all on uh, Canadian or, or U.S.? Oh, yeah, man. This is yeah. very dangerous. So we have the worst prime minister in the history of Canada is current leading, currently leading our country. Trudeau. Okay. Just to give you his qualifications so that everybody understands how qualified this man is. He's a bouncer and a snowboard instructor, instructor and a failed elementary school teacher. And now he runs our country. Hey, but okay. It sounds like he might be superior to uh, the intellect of Biden at this point, though. I mean, at least he's coherent. I'm not going to go in the U.S. I love the U.S. Polis, uh, politi <laughs> politica, or, uh, political race. But listen, in Canada, this man is not he's not suited to run a like a, a picnic in your backyard, let alone a country. Okay. Yeah. And yet he got there because his old man was a former prime minister and not a bad one, but not the perfect one. But I'll just tell you, and I don't know if any, this gets aired in Canada. And I couldn't care less because too many people don't ask the questions. Is Justin Trudeau qualified to manage a trillion dollar economy? And the answer is absolutely not because he responded to a question from a reporter, what about the budget? And his answer was, 
the budget will balance itself. <laughs> and if he was the CEO of a, of a publicly traded company, first of all, he'd be fired on the spot for saying such ludicrous shit. And secondly, and most importantly, his stock would be shorted down to zero. Okay. And, and, and yet in the CDS market, you actually see some of that because it's an open market. So Canada, even though we have a triple A credit rating by S and P, which is actually higher than the United States credit rating of double A plus by the same rating agency, Canada's CDS trades at 40 basis points per year, whereas the U S trades at under 10. Canadian CDS trades at close to a single A credit, meaning a far worse credit quality than the rating would imply. It's pretty obvious which one's actually telling the truth too. Yeah. Just look at the incentives, you know? Well, look, I always say I, there's very few rating agency reports that I would even read. And the truth is most of them I wouldn't even wrap fish in, okay? They're just so conflicted and such garbage, all right? But they ha they carry a certain cachet, particularly among politicians, that can hold up that rating and say, we're still AAA rated. But that's because Trudeau has the glue bag on. He doesn't understand <laughs> how to interpret uh, markets and particularly credit markets. Greg, I want to go. I got a question to go back a little bit. It's a very basic question, but I'm genuinely curious just because we're obviously we do a job that's very far removed from the credit markets. So okay. if you're if you're a bond trader in the year 2021, right? And yes. you've been. You've had a delightful trade going on for 30 to 40 years. We've talked about, you know, interest rates on a steady decline and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a fairly simple setup. Like holistically at the thousand foot view, as rates go down, you can make money trading bonds. Like I think I've heard Pish say a ham sandwich could make money trading bonds. So <laughs> like what, what, if you're, if you're, if you were starting your career, in credit yeah. markets right now, right? You did your yeah. time, now you're on to other things. But if you were starting yeah. your career, what are these guys thinking? How are they processing this on a macro level for the next 20 or 30 years? Because great question. the three of us have just established and you you helped enumerate, it's mathematically impossible due to the, the way things are set up right now for rates to really go down. I mean, obviously yeah. we could go into negative territory. That's a whole nother discussion. But what are people thinking here if you're trading bonds for a living? So great question. Okay, so let's start with a, a little bit of, uh, we'll frame it for you. Uh, when I started trading the US tenure in 1988 was double digits, okay? I actually started trading in 1986. So they, it was 14% the US tenure. And that was down from 20%. So in 1982, Paul Vol Volcker uh, took on inflation and in order to snuff out inflation, they did not have uh, a large enough debt burden to be concerned. He could raise interest rates to that point to snuff out inflation. And so interest rates over the last 35 or 40 years even, okay, so from 1982 to today, 10-year U.S. interest rates have gone from 18% down to effectively under 1%. It, they bottomed out at 0.6% percent in the tenure, which is 60 basis points, and now we're up to 1.4%. A bond is only math, right? It's co contractual. As you said, there are no true capital gains in bonds because even though the price of the bond will go up, if you cash that bond in but still need to redeploy those proceeds in the bond market, all you've done is traded a higher coupon for a low, lower at the market coupon. So you've taken in 20 bucks, but your coupon's gone from 
when I say 20 bucks, 20 bucks on 100 or a 20% capital gain on the price. But the, the, the yield on the bond is, or not the yield, sorry, the yields will be the same. The coupon on the bond has gone from a 10% coupon to an 8% coupon. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, it's only math. And, and so, so I, did I get into the markets in a good time? Yeah, I guess I did. I started trading high yield and high yield had an incremental spread on top of that 10 year. So I was trading high yield at times when high yield would yield 20 to 30% annually. Wow. That's unheard of. Okay. Now high yield yields less than 4%, <laughs> less than 4% guys. This is retarded. Yeah. Anybody who owns high yield debt right now, probably your Reddit guy. I bet you your Reddit <laughs> guy owns high yield bond. I would, I'd be willing to bet he doesn't know what that is. Okay. Well, here's another thing then. So there's a lot of people that do own high yield bonds and it is categorically the worst risk return I've ever seen in my 30 years of trading high yield. And that's because high yield does not even pay you, uh, does not even cover the inflation. Yep expectations in the market, let alone the expected and unexpected defaults. Now, I I need to clarify that. Expected defaults just mean that, look, you know there will be expected defaults. You don't know what the level will be, but every single market that has a corporate bond has a a default component in them because certain bonds default. The unexpected portion is when you hit a a, a cyclical crisis and those expected defaults balloon because the economy is in recession or whatever. The point is this high yield is the worst return, uh, risk return I've ever seen, even on a nominal basis before inflation. Okay. Yeah. Let, uh, real, it, on a real basis after inflation, it has a negative return. And that's even before you get uh, your, your expected and unexpected losses are absorbed. Guys, it's ridiculous. But this is what happens when you have an elephant in the room called the Federal Reserve. Wait, one, one comment that I think is a really simple takeaway from what we just discussed, and this makes mm-hmm. me think of Ray Dalio, because just because a trade has worked for decades doesn't mean it's going to continue to work indefinitely into the future. Especially when it's math. And you've seen that in your career, right? High yield was a great trade when you started, and it's a terrible it, trade now. And, and Exactly. But it's only math, guys. Equities, on the other hand, are not contractually bound. Now, everybody who's invests in equities is always an optimist. Oh, well, these trees in equities, they grow to the moon. They don't, guys. They don't. But everyone always talks about how their biggest winners are that turn from a 20, to, you know, I, I call it a billion dollar market cap company into a, you know, $200 billion market cap company. You never hear about the ones that they invested in that were a $5 billion market cap company that went to zero, yeah. right? But that's what, that's what equities do. They are not, they're, they're much more um, uh, symmetric in their distribution, whereas bonds are asymmetric because they're, they're, they are uh, contractual obligations. When a company's doing well in bond land, okay, it, they have debt outstanding. The company's doing well, meaning their cash flows are exceeding expectations. They don't increase the coupon on the bond and say, oh, you guys, we we borrowed from you. You know, you you took a 6% coupon from us, but at the end of the day, we're doing so well, we're going to increase that coupon to 8% to share the wealth. No, no, that, that accrues to the equity holders. But then the flip side is true. Oh, well, you guys lent to us at 6%, but we're really shitting the bed here. And you should actually get an 8 or a 10% coupon. They don't do that either. And the price of your bond goes down to compensate for that coupon that is not a appropriate risk anymore. 
return, you know? So the price of the bond has to go down so that the yield on that bond compensates the investor for the true risk that they're taking. So bonds are asymmetric to the downside. And what that tends to happen then is bondholders are pessimists, whereas equity holders, well, I guess a lot of equity Equity holders are, are optimists by nature because that's uh, you know they 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 get a they get a stock and then they they go on the bandwagon and they start posting on Reddit what a great stock it is and then your friend comes along with his fucking money and he <laughs> buys it because he read it on Reddit right yeah that sounds exactly right so Greg I wanted to ask you you t- you talked about in the eighties when Volcker stepped in and raised interest rates to fourteen percent and I think even higher before that how. So if we're looking at a similar situation now where interest rates have, I mean, they've been printing money. And so the difference, just so we're clear, the difference now is that the debt overhang is so large that if interest rates were to move in that direction, it would be an outright default. When you are in a debt spiral where the debt balloon is continuing to grow, debt never really matures. It needs to roll over and it needs more buyers. And what may happen is that there's a a strike, a buyer's strike. And while it won't be an actual default, it'll be calamity in the market because an auction doesn't roll. Now, the reason that the auctions are rolling right now is because the Fed is, is in there buying $120 billion per month. Uh, it's the biggest circus I've ever seen. Yeah. If the, market, if the market doesn't have buyers, they just print. Yeah. Correct, Amundo. Right. So without them stepping into the market, we'd see much higher interest rates in the free market. 100% is right. exactly what Stan Druckenmiller said. And the reality was at 3.5%, the US would lose reserve currency status in his in his mind. And I agree with him. So therefore, you're in between a rock and a hard place. It's like you pay now or pay later. You pay now or pay later. And everybody, humans, choice is to pay later. Let's, let's, let's put more money in people's accounts so that I get elected for the next four years so that I can say that I'm the greatest president ever, even though I shouldn't be allowed to to, to, to drive a car, right? Oh, oh sorry. I did say something about, uh, about Mr. Biden. There we go. Yeah. We want to hear more of that. The, uh, <laughs> so, so we're clear though. So if we're assuming the interest rates can't go up, they'll likely go down, maybe negative. Before no, they won't go down. Thing. They won't go down because they're capped at the, at the bottom as well. Okay. You, you will not get negative interest rates in North America. I'm, I'm highly certain of that. They can call out that farcical behavior in, in, in North America, United Europe's are, are they're, they're more squiddish, right? The, the Europe's are, are even more stupid than the North Americans. Yeah, so, wait, ex- so you can explore that a little more. So I, I'm fascinated by that. So why just for us, why don't you think we're going to go negative? We have people like Ray Dalio that'll call it out, right? <laughs> you know, and he'll short the shit out of it. Right? Bond, like wait, he, wait, you, so you think there's still bond vigilantes out there? So bond vigilantes are just going to are just going to put on a different hat and they're not going to be interest rate vigilantes they're going to be credit vigilantes. Okay. Right? You remember yeah. I told you this the the, 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 this oh, yeah exactly boys. Exactly. And that you know I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying look there's still one free market capitalism left and it's called the credit default swap market and it's it's where you look for real truth. And then what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is anti-fiat. It is CBS all wrapped up into this most beautiful technology I've ever seen in my entire life. And you can think of it as CDS against fiats. I was just going to ask you that question. So do you, in your mind, do you think that some of these investors like Ray Dalio, Stan Drunken Miller- He gets it. He gets it. He gets it. I think so too. 
What I'm asking is, do you think they'll approach this more from a traditional standpoint and use the CDS market to approach? Or do you think they would prefer to buy Bitcoin and or maybe some combination of Ooh, those? That's a good question. It's a great question. And it's, it's, it'll, it's a process like everything. I lived this in, in Canada in the high yield market. Um, you know, as long as no one else is doing it, nobody wants to do it. They're, they're like, oh, well, I don't have to do it because my competition isn't doing it. But as soon as someone does it and starts attracting money because they're doing it, everybody else is going to start doing it. So Dalio probably still thinks the Bitcoin market isn't big enough for him to get involved with Bridgewater in a liquidity sense. And maybe he's right. I think it's a little bit of a cop out, but he also has a board of directors and a, uh, and a, and an investment committee of which probably at least three out of five of them are still stupid that they, they don't, they haven't done their own intellectual uh, challenges and haven't done their research on Bitcoin. And that's the problem, right? You, you might have the idea, but your investment committee doesn't. And I'm seeing this in Canada. If, uh, if the CDS market tells us truth, which I believe that you're right on, and I'll have to look more into that. But can't the Federal Reserve manipulate that in a way as well no, if they decided no, to? No, I mean, here, you guys are firemen, okay? You would not buy fire insurance from a pyromaniac, would you? It's <laughs> a great analogy. No, but if it's okay. a free market, they can buy it, right? I mean, what's stopping well, them Well, if from they're buying it, they're betting against themselves. So the other thing is you wouldn't sell, you wouldn't sell fire insurance on your house to a pyromaniac either, would you? The guys that, are bought, that would buy it are the ones that need protection against the Fed. Wouldn't it be hilarious if the Fed is out there buying protection on themselves because <laughs> yeah. they realize they're drunk at yeah. the wheel? Like, that would be fucking amazing. Well, I, the only reason I was speculating on that is because I was thinking, I mean, in, a, in an open market, you can manipulate prices if you have enough money and if they have enough to- Not in this market, guys, because there's counterparty risk and there's people that would look at it and saying, hmm. okay, so you're a confirmed pyromaniac. Okay, got it. Okay, now you're coming to me and you want to- buy insurance on Dan's house. Got it. And all of a sudden you've just bought a whole bunch of gasoline. Okay. Check. Okay. Here's a fucking match. Go over to Dan's house and burn the thing fucking down. Right. Like yeah. it ain't going to happen. It ain't happening. There's at least that much disclosure left in the markets. Okay. I guess I'm just a little bit tinfoil hat enough to wonder how any part of the system can get manipulated and how that would be. Everyone wants to know that. And, and, and stop. how about we look at the beauty, not the, not the beast. Okay. The beauty is a system that is math and code. Yeah, hundred percent certain. I like where it your is at truth, here. and it is driven by math and code. What could that be? Let's think, start dropping think, think. the B word here. I would, yes. like so. Yeah. yeah, let's let's. I love it. So you you talk a lot. You've said that the the most beautifully asymmetric trade you've ever seen in your entire career, Greg, is Bitcoin. That is correct. Start serenading us with some of your your Bitcoin <laughs> bullishness here. What? What? How nah. did you reach this realization? And uh, start start unpacking the Kraken for us here. Sure. So um, first of all, I, I, I need to be honest. I got involved in Bitcoin in 2016 when uh, it was under $1,000 US a coin. And I will tell you categorically that it's, it is a better investment today at today's price than it was when I got involved in it at mm. under 1000 mm. Okay. It is more asymmetric now than it was at a thousand bucks. And that's purely because it survived for five years and it is more robust and there's more people using it. And it's proven that it can, uh, you know, this, this last little era that we've been through is the most beautiful era for Bitcoin survivability that I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Because of the difficulty adjustments, the China mining stuff, the FUD. The, the Elon Musk brain farts of the, uh, uh, you know, of a Saturday Night Live shows and, and uh, you know, uh, I was going to, anyway, so look, all I would say is this, 
don't worry about the price at its current level because it's a rounding error in the context of where I think it can go. Okay, I'm not smart enough to tell you that I think it's worth 40, but it's not worth 50. I will just tell you that based on my analysis using credit default swap market, today, I believe Bitcoin should be trading above $150,000 US a coin, and wow. it's not. Okay, so that's first thing. In today's dollars, it's cheap on that metric. And secondly, that metric's a dynamic measure that will change as the credit default swap market becomes reflective of the more risky nature, meaning it'll go up. So what price do I think Bitcoin could go to on an asymmetric basis? I'm going to run this math through you, this math with you to, to, to show you how simple it is. Okay. Even the Reddit users out there can understand. <laughs> All right, hit us. Okay? Yeah, we're we're going to, we're got our pencils ready. So in, in the world, in the world, there are 900 trillion us dollars of store of value assets. Okay. That includes real estate. It includes gold. It includes bonds. It includes equities, currencies, everything that has a, a measure of a, uh, a store of value and a degree of hard assets. Okay. Now the best one out there, we all know is Bitcoin, but let's start with where we are right now. There's 900 trillion us dollars, mostly real estate, then comes bonds, then comes equities, then comes gold and fine art and currencies and all these other things that fill in the gap, 900 trillion US dollars. What if Bitcoin does become the global reserve asset that I mentioned because of energy? Is there therefore, a, a, is it crazy then to think that Bitcoin could capture 5% of 900 trillion US dollars? I don't think so, right? And 5% of a market? Sounds pretty bearish. Well, what's 5% of nine, what's 5% of 900 trillion is 45 trillion, okay? What's 45 trillion divided by 21 million coins? I'll help you with the mask. More than 45x where we're at today. Yeah. 45x. Probably more like uh, 90. Well, it doesn't matter. It's it's over $2 million a coin. Okay. (laughs) You you stumped me on that one. But you'll, okay. So that's $2 million a coin with only a 5% weighting of the global financial assets. What if it's 10 or 20%, guys? This is the asymmetry that I'm talking about. You really know how to serenade. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's that simple, right? It's, it's, again, I'm not a hundred percent certain of it. So then you have to put probability weights on it. And then you realize how low a probability or a chance of something happens needs to be in order for it to justify today's current trading price. And anybody who's gone to the craps table or anybody who's played, uh, uh, blackjack or understands odds would look at this and go, are you kidding me? I can buy this and all I need it for it. This is like buying a trifecta at the dog track. Okay. Where you're getting one in a thousand, you're getting a payoff of a thousand to one and you've bet the three fastest dogs. Like you, this doesn't happen, right? On the three fastest dogs at a trifecta, your payout is like, I don't know, five to one, maybe if you're lucky. And this is a thousand to one on the three fastest dogs. It, it's, it's guys, it's, I've never seen odds like this in my life. And, and here's the, inc- so I actually just, I have your article out why every fixed income investor needs to consider Bitcoin as portfolio insurance. We'll link this okay. in the show notes. This article is incredibly well done. Uh, as Thank we would you. say in the firehouse, this thing fucks hard, Greg. 
Um, okay. And I'm old. I'm old. I don't. I. I would like to think I, I did someday, but uh, these days I, I need. So I need. Uh, <laughs> here, here's what I found so persuasive. I'm on page 26, and there's this segment okay. that I I loved, and I think I'm going to use something similar to this to enumerate. This, this probabilistic nature of any investment, right? Okay. So this we may offend some maxis here, but I think the three of us would agree. There's absolutely a possibility Bitcoin fails. There's a, there's a chance any trade in the world fails. That's Fucking up to the right. free market. We're not yeah. God, right? Yeah. The thing yeah, I yeah. love in this article is you say, you do a math problem where you say, I'll concede there's a 70, not that we think you think this, but just for the yeah. sake of demonstration, you said, there's a, let's say there's a 75% chance the price is zero. Then I think you, I'm looking here, you said 15% chance is at 135. That's kind of the yeah. valuation you give it today. Yep. 7%, you're at 475. 2%, you're at 2 mil. 1%, you're at 4 mil. But back to the main meat on this bone, which is in this math problem, 75% chance it's worth zero. You still say in here, you'd be buying this thing with both hands. Because why? What did that add up to? I can't remember what that expected value added up to, but you just do that math, right? So 20, you, you did... You have to take the price times the probability. So 75% times zero is zero. You add all those other ones up. What did it come up to? I can't remember, but uh, it should say there somewhere. But the point is, like, right now, it's so cheap, it's not funny. Okay. And everyone's like, well, I'm going to wait till it trades down to 25,000 to get my yeah, exposure. They won't buy and other it people are like, I really like it at 30,000, but I don't like it at 35,000. Fuck off. Okay. Yeah. You guys are not nearly that smart that you can define what it right. should be trading at right now. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's like, we're back to, it's just all about position size. You know, you've got this asymmetry. You so go. if you're uncomfortable, just decrease your position size. But regardless, Attaboy. this thing is such a beautiful hedge position, it's almost impossible to wrap your head around. At least that's the way we see it. Well, and 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 and, and me too, because like I, I again, I've you know, I thought I had experienced the greatest trade ever when I the 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 basically the crowning trade on my hedge fund career coming out of the great financial crisis, and that one was the simplest money that I thought anybody could ever make. And it wasn't risk-free, but it was such a good return. And this one is, honestly, this thing is an order of magnitude better. And what does an order of magnitude better mean? It means at least 10 times better than the best trade I've ever seen. Wow. So how would you, if if you had to sit down with somebody who's just getting into the world of finance and yes. recommend them, and I know this is a very sticky thing to ask, but if you had to no. recommend some kind of a portfolio for the next 20 yeah. to 30 years... How yeah. do you think you would build that? Just something like almost like Ray Dalio's all weather. Let's start with what I know with certainty. Anybody who owns bonds right now should not have a license to manage money. <laughs> I love okay. that one. So that's usually a 60-40 uh, breakdown is your traditional portfolio, which means 40% of the traditional portfolio is garbage, meaning you will never make the true risk that you're exposed to, particularly that, particularly after inflation. But bonds aren't going anywhere. And all these big asset managers need bonds because it's in their investment guidelines. That they they have actually mandates. have to hold yeah. a certain number of, exactly. So, but someone who's designing a portfolio with, uh, with no restrictions and actually has a brain, uh, I would say, look, put zero allocation to bonds. Okay, very simply. And then they'd say, oh my God, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And I'd say, yeah, but if you own zero Bitcoin, you're actually taking more risk than if you have a proper portfolio allocation. And someone would say, well, what is that proper weight? And I just go and I say, why don't you read what Yale Research, you know, that Ivy League institution in the U.S., 
they've said between six and 8% of your portfolio. And that allocation should come from your bonds. Okay. Well, my bonds started at zero, so we're not going to go to negative bonds, <laughs> but actually isn't, listen to what I just said. I actually would borrow money to buy Bitcoin. And who else did that? Oh yeah. Michael just Saylor. about the smartest person yeah. that I've ever come across in my entire life. His name is Michael Saylor. Okay. So I'm not advocating you go out there and borrow money to buy Bitcoin. I'm just advocating, do your research. And if you own zero, you're actually taking an incredible amount of risk relative to if you have a 5% portfolio weight to start. My, my weighting's higher than that. I do own real estate and I include it in my, my investment portfolio. I do own gold. Yeah, Peter Schiff, I admit I'm not perfect and there is a chance that gold goes up, but I actually prefer my trifecta, my big race dog. If I had to pick the winner of the race, it's Bitcoin. But if I need to pick a trifecta, I'll have a little bit of, of uh, you know, I'll pick Bitcoin and then I'll have some gold and I'll have some real estate. I'll have some energy. Uh, I'll have zero bonds. In fact, I might have negative bonds because I could borrow money to buy more of these other things. And, and then you just sit down and you go, I don't know how old you guys are, but like I'm 58 and I sit down and I go, well, I want to live this long, but I probably won't. So here's what I'm going to do. And this is what my portfolio is going to be. You heard it here, folks. You uh, lever everything up, mortgage your house, uh, get a loan on all your cars. Yeah. You run into a burning building. You run into a burning, burning building, right? You guys do what you do best and you survived it. You go, fuck, I'm lucky, man. I survived this shit. Okay, I'm going out and I'm buying a lottery ticket. But this ain't a lottery this ticket. Is way this better. is yeah. way, way, way better. Where does equity fit in there? They're you, good, man. Equities you, yeah. are good. But the problem is with equities, you know, go and look at what made up the Dow 30 companies uh, 30 years ago. And there were things in there like Kodak, <laughs> you know, there were things in there that don't exist anymore because equities default regularly as well. Yeah, and then it, and it's obviously the the tail on the dog. We're talking credit versus you know, and so yeah, credit yeah. always is the where you know you look for your indications. But you know, look, even uh, Jeff Bezos says there's a chance that uh, Amazon doesn't exist in a hundred years, and I'll agree with that. Yeah, like it, yeah, but because that's what happens. Sears and Roebuck are dead. Well, Sears, Sears Roebuck was in the Dow thirty, right? Yeah. So so here's the neat thing. Um, there is creative destruction in open markets. Uh, that means that an Amazon will take a place of uh, Sears Roebuck. Uh, isn't it amazing that Sears Roebuck started with a catalog and a essentially an online, well, it wasn't online because there was no uh, yeah, internet. Kind of the analog but, version of Amazon. But yeah, analog, exactly. But here's the other thing. Uh, I mean, Kodak invented digital photography, right? Their stupid board just didn't see the future. Yep. And here's an even better story. And this hits home with the Foss family. All right. So my family name, uh, Foss, F-O-S-S, Norwegian. But we first landed in North America 100 years prior to your Declaration of Independence. Okay. So we landed in a small town in, uh, in uh, Northeast called Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And uh, gradually over time, my family made it up to uh, north of Portsmouth, which there was no border at the time, but in, into what is now Southern Quebec. And my gr great, great uncle produced the first gasoline powered automobile in Canada. Wow. Okay. And he, he got the design from down in, in around Boston somewhere. And there was a border at this time because that was in 1897. So he's a Canadian and he, he, he builds this automobile. 
And it's freaking cool. He's putting around town in a town called Sherbrooke, Quebec. He's putting around town to the extent that Henry Ford came to him and said, dude, I like your automobile. Let's go into business together. And my great uncle said, nah, there's no demand for this thing. Ouch. We produced one of them. All right. He went on Reddit. We went, <laughs> I, I listened to your, your, your buddy on Reddit that said, fucking horses are here to stay. Okay. You're not going to, you, you don't need these things called gas powered automobiles. So anyway, the point is, okay, it was my great uncle. I wouldn't have gotten any money anyway from him, but he had the chance to be the Ford of Canada and he produced one and it's cool, right? It's cool because look, there's no, there was no roadmap that said you have to do this, but you're supposed to take, first of all, technology always wins. Secondly, open source technology, which is Bitcoin always wins. Listen to your buddy, Jack Mahlers. If anybody in Chicago needs to go anywhere, go get a deep pan pizza and listen to Jack Mahlers until the cows come home. That kid is so darn smart. It's not funny. We're going to try to get him on for sure. I would, I would pray that you did because, uh, Chicago produces a lot of really good things, but, uh, uh, Jack Mahler should be at Wrigley Field giving a presentation on the Lightning Network yeah. to the, the the Cubs fans. All right, and 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 the reality is why? Because people don't understand what a gem he is. No, they don't. Greg, I want to slip in uh, one more thing before sure. uh, your time is up here. We're sure. So we're, as you know, we're both firefighters, and I'm actually on the pension board. So I wanted to ask you a couple of things uh, relative to our pension and just give yes, you a sir. quick uh, understanding of how it's the allocation works and what your thoughts are on this allocation of uh, funds. Okay. I think I can already guess, but here, here's how this thing works. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, 70% funded uh, with an yeah. assumed 7% growth rate. So how that's are you going to get there, by the way? I, how are you going to get to 7%? See, this is where it all breaks down. We have no idea, Greg. This is this is all rainbows, horseshoes, and you know. Yeah. Hope for the best, and hope the worst doesn't happen. Well, I want to walk you before you go anywhere. I want to walk you through that implied math. Okay, so look, if you have a sixty forty portfolio, which means you're sixty percent equities and forty percent bonds. Okay, sixty five. We're mandated to have. Yeah, Yeah, we're sixty five equities, thirty five bonds. Okay, exactly. Okay, it do, well, I'm not as good at, at math on the on. The, I'm good better on the sixty forty because I've done it in my head before. Okay, okay. so look, which means on the forty percent of your portfolio that is uh, that is bonds, if that's a blended return, you have a little bit of high yield, you have a little bit of structured we product, do. you have a little bit of let's say that returns three percent blended. That's a 3% contract. Okay. Cause high yields 4%. That's almost exactly what it's returning right now, actually, by the okay, way. Okay. 3%. Okay. So yep. what is 3% times 40%? That's 1.2%, right? Mm-hmm. So 1.2% is what you get from bonds. And that means that equities need to make up the balance. So you said 7%. So what's seven minus 1.2? That's 5.8, right? Yep. This is almost going to be perfect. So 5.8 divided by 60 means you need to get a 10% return on equities forever and ever to make your 7% bogey. Right. Okay, guys. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Look, who who needs to a, a reality check and who's smoking, you know, the good stuff? Okay. Like you need to revisit the assumptions because they they might have worked when interest rates in the 10 year were 7%, right. but they don't work when interest rates in the 10 year 
are 1.4%. And the mandate doesn't flex with that. No, That's part of the problem. We're at the minimum bond allocation right now. Well, you guys get it. Like you guys get it. And the the thing I love about your perspective, Greg, is you you always go back to, guys, it's just math. And the the, the challenging thing about in being a first responder, being guaranteed these just Ponzi scheme pensions with all due respect. And the system we're in is is as robust and good as it it can be given it's whatever. But it's like, gentlemen, we may be doing a service to the community. We may have people to support us. But if the math doesn't work, we're not yes. getting paid. You are not. I, I hate to say it, but you are not getting paid. I mean, they could pay, pay, uh, print more money for you, but yeah, then you're they getting could money bail the system out. Yeah. Well, yeah. They, they, but then you're guaranteed to get money that's worth less one half as much as yeah. when you thought yeah. you were getting it. Right. That's what a fiat contract is. A bond is a fiat contract, and and you can lend someone a hundred bucks that like the U.S. Treasury for 10 years, there's a high degree of probability you'll get your 100 bucks back. The difference is in 10 years, that 100 bucks is worth maybe 65 bucks in purchasing power relative to the 100 bucks you lent them. That's a shitty, shitty contract. I don't know if this is something that you've said or I've picked up somewhere else, but somebody said a 1% allocation of Bitcoin in your portfolio of say a 60-40 portfolio could theoretically be enough to carry the rest of it. Um, Of course, with the understanding that it goes to say $2 million. Okay. So you're totally right. And I say 3%. Okay. I go to 3% and Yale said 6%. So why don't you go to the really smart academics, which there aren't that many, but let's assume Yale is not as stupid as uh, let's say Steve Hankey is at Johns Hopkins. Okay? <laughs> squid. So Yeah, squid. Exactly. So, so he's conflicted beyond belief. Him and Elon probably have something going, right? No, he shouldn't either, right? But, but here's the, here's the, the truth. You got to run these sensitivities and then you got to realize the funny thing is when someone gets a 3% portfolio weighting, it's like they forgot what not the other 97% is invested in. And all they look at is this 3% one. Oh my God, it went up, it went up. Or oh my God, it went down, it went down. Guys, put that book away and we'll talk in 20 years and then we'll see how it turned out. So if you, if you know, in this stuff, the problem is these systems are there's so much red tape and bureaucracy, it's almost impossible to get through. But we have loose aspirations of trying to throw some of these ideas out there, you know, at some, some point in the future. Good, man. You guys are doing incredibly good work. It's smart. And the problem is, it's like, in our mind, yeah, let's say we'd, we'd like to get to a 3 to 5% allocation. I think the, and this is probably pie in the sky even to think, but in our mind, like, Let's let's start suggesting one percent and see if anybody bites. You got to start at greater than zero. You're totally right. You got to start at greater than zero. But you know, Greg, this is part of the reason Josh and I are really passionate about this. And obviously, we're not here saying (laughs) lever up and and throw your entire portfolio in Bitcoin. But we're looking at some of our our you know our fellow firefighters and and cops and whatever these people that are guaranteed these Ponzi's, and we're saying. You got to start thinking this through because the next 30 to 40 years are going to look a lot fucking different than the last 30 to 40. There will be a hundred years of innovation in the next 10 years. Okay, guys, just understand that when I graduated in 1986 from McGill University, I had never used a personal computer and that's not a knock on myself. It's just the fact that a personal computer did not exist. All right. And now there's more power in one iPhone then was required to send two men to the moon. Isn't that amazing? It's crazy. And this is the world I'm living in. And I promise you, if I'm a 58-year-old clown that can get my head around it, it should be so simple for a kid that's grown up with an iPhone in their hand. 
yeah. to understand that digital and technology is the future. And that carrying around a gold bar is sort of sexy, but it ain't that fucking smart. Yeah. <laughs> and if the world is melting down, you don't want people to know that you have a gold bar in your house. They will find a way to burn your house down and get that gold. But they don't know if you own Bitcoin. And this is not the world I want you to, to, to grow up in. But you got to call it out for what it is. Gold has for thousands of years served as a store of value, but it has so many uh, shortcomings versus what Bitcoin is. And the two try and solve the same problem, except Bitcoin does it with modern technology, with math and code. Don't overthink it. Do not overthink it, okay? It is a natural progression of humans' ability to adapt and it might not have been designed. I told you I'm spiritual. I actually think that it's such a brilliant innovation. I'm, I'm not even certain it was designed on earth. I've <laughs> yeah. had that thought too. That yeah. Almost with tongue in cheek. I yeah. say, who could possibly have been this smart? It is mind blowing. It's isn't crazy. It? And then to disappear. And then to disappear. Because we don't need a Vitalik Buterin no. who looks like a rocket scientist, but looks also like a, a wet dish rag. Okay. <laughs> like at the end of the day, we don't need to him to pretend or to fake decentralization when in fact he is the centralized control. You want to yeah, like, anyway, let's leave that. Alone. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it, it's seriously, it's not overstated though, to, to talk about this immaculate conception of this thing. I mean, it just can't, it can't be repeated. It is amazing. It cannot be repeated. And you know, whether, whether these all coiners are criminals or just naive, who knows, but uh, they just, there'll be, there'll be ones that survive. And I'm going to leave you with this. Okay. Ethereum may be the test net for layer three Bitcoin. So yeah. what survives on Ethereum after all is said and done will probably get transferred to the purest decentralized ledger and the first blockchain mm. ever yeah. created called Bitcoin. But let's not overthink that either. Maybe there are other DeFi things that exist, but lots of them will fail and everyone will buy the cheap one that trades. I don't even know what Dogcoin trades at right now, but like, let's say it's 26 <laughs> More cents or something. Let's say, okay, it's a, it's a big fucking deal, right? It's worth zero, but it trades at 25 cents. It's just because it seems cheap relative to something that trades at 35,000 bucks, right? It's just such human philosophy and such garbage, but- It would be fair to call you a uh, Bitcoin maximalist then? I am a Bitcoin maxi that owns Ethereum because I'm never 100% certain, okay. but I believe the better risk return is in Bitcoin because it solves what I need to be solved. The Fiat Ponzi spiral. Ethereum will not solve that, but it could potentially solve other things that need to be solved as well. When it comes down to it, I own Bitcoin for my kids. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. I own it for the future and the future generation. We do too, Greg. Seriously, we okay. both have children and we feel the same way. Well, that's what it's about then, boys. Greg, if I don't mind one more real quick. Yeah. Is go, there go, go. anything that would cause you to uh, question your conviction in Bitcoin? Um, you know what? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly worried of that. It will be outlawed in, in some, some very strong nations yeah. and it'll cause the price to absolutely crater in the short term, but it should cause smart people to realize then that it's the buy of the century. Yeah. Um, but you never know, like, look, is quantum computing something that could crack Bitcoin? I don't know. Cause I don't know quantum computing, but I do know that if it can crack Bitcoin, we have way bigger problems in the world about what it, what it could also hack, you know? <clears throat> so what it comes down to is I play probabilities like I always do. And 
I own Bitcoin because it's the best asymmetric trade I've ever seen. And I'm not 100% certain about the outcome for Bitcoin, but what I am 100% certain of is that fiat money will be debased because that is only mathematics. Okay, so I'm 100% certain of the reason I own Bitcoin, which is that fiat currencies will continue to debase over time. It's pure math. Beautifully said. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we we saw on Twitter earlier today, you got, you're actually, you're on double time today. You're on with Preston tonight, Bitcoin Fundamentals. Yeah. Um, great podcast. With an old Cornell professor, okay? Heck yeah, that's our, awesome. that's our favorite Bitcoin podcast. I'm going on one. I'm going up against one of my old Bitcoin. Uh, he he was not a professor of mine at Cornell, but uh, I look forward to trying to get him to try and orange pill him. I know he's so close, and we have politicians in Canada as well that uh, that that can't publicly say that they're Bitcoiners, but I know privately they are. And sometimes you just can't go out and say that you endorse something that basically admits that the current system is uh, is questionable, right? Yeah. Well. I am looking forward to hearing that. Us, uh, Greg, us lightweights will step aside and let you get prepped for this heavyweight bout tonight. <laughs> you guys are you guys are too harsh on yourself. I mean, honest to God, you are not. You're doing the work that I would pray that most people did. And by the way, it just gives me, here's what I do know. I was just at a, a meetup. Well, two, two things I'll share with you. I have two more minutes. Um, firstly, when I went to the Bitcoin uh, uh, conference in Miami and I was fortunate enough, enough to be on stage, I met people down there that give me tremendous hope about the future of the world because the world is fucked up right now. Okay, let's be honest. It's run by people that should not be in power. Either they're conflicted or they're very poor at math. They're downright fucking criminal. It exists everywhere. It is a problem with uh, career academics, people who've never sat in a risk chair in their whole lives. And when I say a risk chair, like you guys sit in a risk chair, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, you're taking risk every day of your life. What are they doing? They're sitting in a cushy little endowed chair like Steve Hankey or they're, you know, they're a career politician like Joe Biden. Like they've never done fuck in their whole lives. Okay. And yet they're dictating policy to the whole world. And, and that's dangerous. So you guys are doing the homework that I prayed that these conflicted, lazy intellectual people would do, but they're not. Because why? If you put more money in people's bank accounts in the four years that you're in term, you're a president, chances are you'll get elected for the next four years. It's just pure, you know, the way the system works. Yeah. So God bless you guys for doing the work you guys do, for having the conviction to, to the conviction to question the system and then believe in mathematics. Okay. Okay. So I met these guys down in, in, in Bitcoin, uh, in Guala, uh, excuse me, in, in, in Miami, the guys I met were from Guatemala and they're just, I'm still in touch with them and we're working on projects down in El Salvador now. Okay. So Canada and El Salvador working on things that, that before Bitcoin wouldn't even be, you know, wouldn't even have been out in the open. And then this last Friday, I go to a meetup in, uh, in Waterloo, Ontario, which is about an hour's drive from where I live. And I meet all these young kids that are doing the same thing. And I'm like, Jesus, this is good stuff. Yeah, It's an incredible community. This gives me hope. Okay. So keep, the, keep the faith. That's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is hope and it's truth. Okay. And it's everything that is, it's the anti everything that's wrong with today's systems. And there's a lot wrong with today's systems. Amen. Greg, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, no hate mail, no hate mail, but you can send me DMs on Twitter at Foss, Greg Foss. 
I'd try and help you guys understand everything. It sounds to me like they're in really good hands with the work you two guys have done. So, uh, look, uh, please let me know if there's things I can help on. But it sounds to me like you're 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 right up to speed. You don't need my help. So, well, thank you, Greg. We really appreciate that. Go get them, boys. I got to run. Okay. Take thank care. You. Huddle on. Thank you. Let's do let's do another one of these. Okay, someday. Okay. Thank you so much. Take, Take care. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind. And our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.